Welcome to New Orleans. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. What do you think of the title, The Bittersweet Life, right now, Tiffany? It's more bitter than sweet for me right now. <laughs> I know. You've had a hard, hard happening. Do you want to tell us about it? So, um, I know that we talked about when uh, I was in the States and we did some episodes recorded in the States um, that my dad had been unwell and that one of the reasons I had gone back was to visit him and spend some time with him. And he passed away a couple of days ago. So, so if you've been through that, then you know exactly how I'm feeling. <laughs> I know. I was saying to um, Tiffany, I was telling her about a time of something my father said, which was, you feel like you can intellectually prepare if you know somebody is sick, particularly a parent, that you're going to not have them around. But my father said that when it came to his father, even though his father had had a really long illness, we knew that over time there was no coming back from it. That even still, when his father actually died, the way that he felt was, you know, nothing like he could have imagined. That sort of uh, being alone on the planet without a parent was a an emotion or a feeling that he just couldn't prepare for. Have you found that to be true? Yes and no. I think I still haven't processed all of the emotions that go along with it. As we've established a long time ago on this podcast, I, uh, it takes me a while for things to sink in, whether that's becoming an Italian citizen or getting married or Katie leaving. <laughs> yeah, as far as you know, I'm still there, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm just pretending you still live down the road, even though I don't live on the same road anymore. No, um, but it's, it's, I had, I don't think that I've fully processed what happened. Um, like your, with your father's father, I knew that, that he was sick. I knew that he was not coming back from it. I'm an eternal optimist. So I thought he had longer. I really assumed that I would have him for at least another year. And I was, you know, I'm going back to the States in March for the, um, launch of my book. And I just assumed that I would go visit him on that trip. I don't, didn't even consider that he wouldn't be around anymore. I think I do live with a certain amount of denial. <laughs> um, he had Alzheimer's, which is not what ended up killing him. He had some strokes in the last week he was alive that I think hastened what was happening. But um, he had Alzheimer's and I did not accept it for a long time. And it was easy for me to do that because I wasn't seeing him very often. And so I could kind of just, I was telling myself, no, it's something else. It couldn't be that, I, you know, not my dad. And I finally, uh, I finally accepted it. I don't know. A couple of years ago, I finally saw that it really was true. That it wasn't some excuse that everybody was making. Um, so I guess a combination of living in denial, being far away, and just being a person who things sink in slowly, I still don't, I still don't, it's weird. You said the word intellectually. I still haven't intellectually accepted it, whether or not I've emotionally accepted it. I don't think I've accepted it either way. Right. And it's hard. Well, and sometimes it's not about accepting it. Like, how could you accept it, really? It's, I don't know if accepting is the right word or just um, acknowledging it or, believing it. Yeah. You know, I have a, I have a friend who lost her mom 
about five years ago, also an expat, also someone who got back very, very infrequently, even more infrequently than I do. And her mom died, coincidentally, of dementia. And it was a very, the end was very fast. And she said that she, you know, they cremated her, but she said, don't, I have to see her body before you cremate her. She said that she would not have been able to accept it intellectually until she saw her mother's body. So maybe that's a, a normal thing for people who are far away, that don't see their parents often or who weren't there, you know, in the last few moments of their life. But I'm finding that to be the case for me. Yeah, that makes so. sense. <laughs> I want, I'm just wondering if people are listening to this are wondering how I can be talking about this in a, such a composed manner, especially with my foil, Katie Sewell, who, um, who cries over baby eels. No, I'm just kidding. Did you cry over the baby eel? I can't remember. I don't think I cried I don't think you eel. cried. No, I don't think but I probably wanted to if I didn't. Um, no, I'm, it's a long established fact that if somebody's going to cry in this podcast, it's going to be me. Which is interesting because, you know, I don't think that my regular NPR listening audience would have expected that from me. So I've become a lot more emotionally available since this show started. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's strange because I feel like if you were to take the two of us, just sort of like clinically speaking, I seem like the more emotional one. I feel like I think that's in, our per- in our just regular lives, like I'm kind of a dramatic melodramatic person at least that's I I used to be a very melodramatic person I feel like I'm pretty emotional person and I feel like you are more of a of a rock type person like yes you're emotional but like you hold it together but on this show for some reason it's the opposite and but you know I feel like that's kind of it's not just on this show I think that when it comes to other people's grief and other people's touching beautiful moments whether that's something sad or happy, whether it's a friend's wedding or um, even just reading about things on the news about people that I don't know. If I go to tell somebody a story, like I was telling my husband the story about the um, army widow who you know has been in the news recently um, for having Donald Trump having said something kind of callous to her on the phone. I'm sure you've most of you have heard the story. Yes, he says he says something along the lines of he knew what he was signed up for after he was killed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I watched the little video of the, uh, I don't know what it's called. I'm sure there's an official word for it, like the transfer of the, um, of the body from the airplane to the hearse when she was there, you know, and she was pregnant, she is pregnant. And, and I, you know, I was very moved by that. And I, I was telling it to my, I was telling him the story because I don't think it made the, you know, the international news. And I got choked up just talking about it. I really had to like control myself not to, um, you know how when you get that like teary voice sound, like you don't actually cry, but like you, you, you know, you're kind of um, tearing up. Mm-hmm. And I always get embarrassed because it happens to me a lot. And he kind of like teases me about it in a nice way. Like he'll kind of say, oh, like you're getting emotional, you know? And that happens to me a lot when I'm talking about other people's lives and other people's suffering and also beautiful things like watching my friends. I cried in my sister's wedding. I cried in a couple of other people's weddings. I did not cry in my own wedding. So I think when it's me, either I shut off emotionally 
when I'm having to talk about myself or I don't know, I guess or it's just an, a coping mechanism. I'm not sure what it is, but um, hmm. it was funny. I was talking, I was, I was talking with you, Katie, um, about a week ago Yeah. when, you know, he was just about, you know, I knew it was days away and, and you started crying, <laughs> you started crying. And I thought, what's wrong with me that my friend is crying and I'm not crying. I should be the one crying. I'm not going to say I haven't cried because I have before and after. Um, but I don't know. You can make your own decisions of what that says about me as a person. Mm, I don't know. I mean, it could also say as much about the stuff that I've lived through or was currently living through, like that it taps into um, something I can relate to, you know, that fear of losing a parent. Yeah. My father was given a terminal diagnosis years ago and then survived. But, you know, I remember what it was like to to feel that to be on the edge of that. And you were telling this beautiful story about the fact that your book's coming out. And of course, once your sisters knew that he was dying and that, you know, he most likely wouldn't be around when you were back in the States on your book tour, that you were telling me that story about mailing him the book. It's, you tell the story because my order's backwards. It was my stepbrother who wrote to me. My stepbrother lives with my father and my stepmother. And so he obviously knows, you know, firsthand situation and I don't and he wrote to me and he said will you send me a signed copy of your book I want to read it to your dad well I said sure I of course I'm going to do that it comes out in March I'll send it to you in March you know this is me being eternally optimistic and or in denial and he said I hope we have that long like that was his response I hope we have that long which I took at the moment I was very kind of offended to be honest um hopefully he's not he's not listening (laughs) but I was a little you know oh you know that's insensitive what offended you about that? I don't know. I just felt like it was insensitive. But the truth is, it was just the truth. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't insensitive. It was just him being honest, and I didn't want to hear it. About a week after or two after that, my stepmother wrote to me. And I know my stepmother. She's not the type of person to exaggerate. She's not dramatic. She's not melodramatic. If anything, she understates things. Her words in the email were, your father is entering the last stages of his illness. And I was at work when I got that email, and I basically broke down crying. So there was, there was a crying moment from me. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, not caught on tape. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's the tape recorder that's the problem. Yeah, yeah, maybe I just clam up. Yeah, it's not that you're emotionally disconnected. It's the uh, <laughs> putting it out in the world for all to hear. Yeah, so... I have five copies of the, what they're called is the galleys of the book, which is the uncorrected proofs that my publisher sent me. And they, it's bound together. It looks pretty much exactly like a trade paper paperback. It just has a few different things, a few like kind of random things on it, like the date that it's going to be released and a little note to like potential people who are going to be reviewing it and stuff like that. And it has, you know, it has some errors in it. So I have five copies of these just sort of sitting in my apartment and I went home after work. I was going to wait for the next day. I was like, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. Claudia said, my husband said, no, we're doing this tonight. We're doing this now. And I said, oh, should we go to the post office? He says, no, we're going to FedEx. <laughs> um, again, this is me. Even though my stepmother had said, you know, he's entering the last stages of his illness, I, I still thought, okay, well, that means months, right? Instead of a year. That means a few months. And little did I know it was 10 days. He, from that day, he, he lived for 10 days, um, nine days, actually. 
So we went to FedEx and of course it was $63. And I was like, $63. Hmm. I texted my husband, maybe I'm going to go to the post office. He said, cough up the 63 euros and stick, you know what's the big deal like is this your father do you want him to see your book or not and thank god for him for talking some sense into me yeah so i coughed up the 63 euros i sent the book with just coincidentally my uh the two days before had been grandparents day here in italy so my son had made a little um letter at daycare to his grandparents and it was, it was an italian of course but but I sent that off. I just folded it up. I put it in the package. I was like, this is perfect timing. And I sent it and it got, thank God for FedEx. It arrived in three days. Wow. My stepmother took a pic. Actually, it was with my sister. One of my sisters who took a picture of my dad holding the book and um, sent it to me, which was incredibly touching. Um, and he had a bit of a smile on his face, as much of a smile as, you know, as he was able to give. And my stepmother read it to him, not the whole thing. She didn't manage to get through, but she, um, she read the first few chapters to him and she wrote to me and she said, who would have ever thought that I would be reading your book to dad? Mm -hmm. Life is full of unexpected blessings. Wow. See, that's where I burst into tears, I believe. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm already yeah. like, oh, you know, just like you were saying where you say, sometimes you're telling a story and I'm like oh yeah I can feel that still that that's a really plus you showed me the picture and yeah you know sort of that idea of it's um you having a written a book and that it's coming out and it's uh, such a big accomplishment and the fact that your father gets to see that before he goes yeah amazing yeah it, it really was and you know you've asked yourself does he understand what it means and now, I told him when I got the book deal, which was now over two years ago, I told him. And he was already definitely sick by that time. But um, I think he understood, I, you know. And my stepmother said that he, you know, every so often would cry, would tear up a little bit while she was reading it. So anyway, it's, mm. yeah, it's, it's what it is. I, there's no words to really describe any of this, um, but it's. It's hard, definitely hard to be far away. And I think that as an expat, this is probably the most difficult thing I've had to face. You know, being an expat makes it harder than it already would be, just for the distance. Right. Because you're in Rome. He was in Idaho mm -hmm. in the United States. So that's, you know, a good thousand something dollars and who knows how many miles between you being there and him. Yeah, I mean, I could have gone, I could have made it happen, um, and I'll always probably wonder and regret a little bit and say, should I have gone? Maybe I should. Maybe I should have gone. I saw my dad in July, in June. You know, he was not doing great, but he was he was mobile. He was talking a little bit. He was, you know, interacting. He remembered. You know, he knew who I was. He understood who Aurelia was, and and so sometimes I think, you know, that's a. It's better that I remember him like that than to have to see him lying completely immobile in bed and not be able to speak, which is how he was for the last 10 days of his life. And so, I mean, I'm going to try not to regret that decision, but it's, it's hard. It's part of, if you go back and listen to the episode called Expat Guilt, I mean, all expats have a certain amount of guilt towards their family and the people that they've left behind. Yeah. And I think when these situations come up, it becomes, becomes even more acute. And I decided not to go. He's having a celebration of life in March 
and I will obviously be there, the scattering of the ashes, etc. But um, but I'm not going right now, which is another difficult thing just to sort of explain to people because people at my office, you know, they look at me almost like <laughs> shocked when I say that I'm not going back. And family is extremely important to Italians. I mean, not that it's any less important to us. I mean, of course, but I think that there is... I don't know if I want to say there's a stronger connection between grown children and their parents than there is for us, but, you know, because their lives are so much more entwined, their daily lives are much more entwined, children usually leave home much later, they usually don't move very far away, they see each other very often. In that case, I can see how it would be shocking to someone. I also have five sisters, and I'm not giving myself a pass because I have five sisters, but... I will say if I were an only child, I would I would have gone. But I knew he was surrounded by not only his daughters, but his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and his stepsons. And, you know, this huge cloud of love just surrounded him in all of those last weeks of his life that I know he felt. And I did Skype with him, and I know it's not the same, but, um, you know, I was able to look into his eyes, and he was looking into mine, and it was the second best thing, I guess. But anyway, I, I don't. I try not to make excuses for my decision. And, you know, I know I know I don't owe anybody any excuses, but it it does sometimes. I do sometimes feel like like I'm being questioned, or like I should be if I'm not. <laughs> well, how did you make that decision? Well, you know, when I was in when I was in the states in June, I was talking to my sister Robin, and and I was still very much, you know, like, oh, dad is, you know, dad's not doing great, but you know, he'll be around for a while. And she said, now listen, I just want to say this to you. Now don't cry <laughs> when dad goes. And of course I started crying immediately just after her said her saying that. She said, when dad goes, we're going to have a small funeral right after. And then we're going to have a celebration of life with the scattering of his ashes on the Puget Sound. My dad lived for many years on the Olympic Peninsula, first in Polesbo, Washington, then in Kingston, for those of you who are who are listening from Washington State or the Seattle area. So he lived there for a long time and would take the ferry back and forth between downtown Seattle where he worked. And he loved the Puget Sound. And so that's where his ashes will be scattered. And she said, I don't want you to feel like you have to come back for both of those things because it's it creates financial hardship. It's difficult to get time off work. No one expects you to come back for both of those things. So you choose which one is more important to you. If I had to say, I would say the celebration of life. I think that's where he would rather have you be, but you decide. And I felt the same exact way. Plus, I won't deny that it's easier to plan something that's going to be several months in advance. And so that's how I made the decision. And when I found out that he was, you know, really sick, I talked to one of my other sisters and and she said, no, I don't want you to feel bad for not coming. And then she said really quickly, well, well, come if you want, but, you know, don't feel bad. Nobody expects you to come. You're far away. You have a little boy. I do have to say that knowing that my closest family didn't have that expectation of me definitely made me feel less guilty. Although, you know, maybe I shouldn't, maybe it shouldn't be a, an issue of feeling guilty or not. Maybe it should just be a desire to go. And I, I'm not going to say I didn't have the desire to go, but in the end... I just made the, what decision worked best for us, I suppose. This way also Claudio and my son can come. If I had gone to the funeral right now, uh, they wouldn't have been able to come with me. And, um, you know, I want them by my side. I remember from that conversation that we had 
in that guilt episode, it wasn't that you and I had that I had with another yeah. writer who had decided when her mother got diagnosed with cancer not to go back, I believe was the scenario. It was a long time ago. I apologize. But I remember that part of what we were talking about was that it's part of what makes you feel guilty as an expat is that you're so far away and that you're not there at these pivotal moments. But in some ways, it also gives you a pass. She's like, I'm sure a part of me, like I wanted to support my mother, but a part of me didn't want to have to sit in the hospital with her while she got chemo treatments and how awful that would be and felt guilty about that Mm -hmm. as well. That kind of relief that you didn't have to go through those final days. You know, do you feel any Um, of that? I don't know if I feel relief. My dad died at home. I had hospice care. And there were a lot of my other family members, like my sisters and stepbrothers who were coming in and out. And I think it actually might have been really, I'm not going to say enjoyable, (laughs) But but at the same time, a sweet, a bittersweet, <laughs> to use an apropos word, a bittersweet moment to share with those people in my life. Um, I think I probably would have been able to come to terms with his death more if I'd been there. I did fly back once when he had a heart attack five years ago now. Um, I flew back and I flew to Boise, which flying to Boise is not easy to do from Rome because you have to get two connections. There's no, there's no way to fly with only one connection that I know of. <laughs> if you know a way, let me know. Um, although it's too late now. <laughs> um, so I did, I did fly um, on, I think I bought the ticket the night before, the day before, 24 hours before, 36 hours before I flew. Because he had a heart attack and it was very sudden. And he had, you know, he'd already started to have a little bit of problems, but no one was expecting at all for him to die. And so... I think that was part of it. It was like, this might be the last chance to say my, see my dad. Whereas this time in June, I really felt when I was there, this is, even though I, I hoped he would still be around for another year, I did basically psych myself up for the fact that this could be the last time. And when I kissed him and hugged him the very last time I saw him, I did so with the full awareness that it was very likely the last time. Having had that, I think made it much easier for me not to go back. Whereas that time in 2012, I hadn't, I hadn't had any kind of goodbye with him. And I, um, I just said, I have to be there. I have to be there just in case he dies. And so I flew back for four days, literally four days. (laughs) And I was very happy that I went. I got to spend some really great quality time with my family members. I didn't get to spend hardly any time with him because cardiac patients, you know, they, they, they can't have a lot of excitement. So they tell people, don't go visit them because they, they don't want you, them to get emotional, you know, and have their hearts start pounding. So I didn't spend hardly any time. I did see him very briefly in the hospital after he had his surgery. But what I hated about that was the traveling part. It was really horrible to do all of that traveling by yourself. You don't know what's going to happen. It's exhausting physically. It's exhausting mentally. It's expensive, you know. Yeah. The practical side of me is piping, is chipping that in. I wouldn't have wanted to do that, just that part of it. But I don't think that being there would have been, you know, a negative thing for me. I think it would have been, I think it would have been nice to be there. If I'd been living in Seattle, even in Boston, I would have gone for sure. No, no question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have to hate to say this, but if he had been in New York City, I might have gone. Right. There's something very easy about going to New York. 
from Rome. It's just, you know, it's really not that far away and it's quick flights, not that expensive. It's just easier to do. You can, you can go for four days to go to Boise for four days is just, it just wrecks you. It wrecks you. I hate to say that I, that I, I had such a sort of practical reaction, but but I did. Let's see. You've re- lived in Rome now for what, 12 years? Something like that? 13 years? 13 years. 13, yeah. What about just the fact that you've been gone that far away for so long? As you know that he was dying, did you start making calculations about how much time was missed or like thinking about that with other members of your family? All those things that people say, well, one day you're going to regret having moved away from Seattle when you could have spent all this time, you know, whatever it Absolutely. is. Absolutely. That's probably the biggest thing that makes me the most sad. I think he was really ready to go. I think he was ready to die. I, I mean, I wish he'd had 10 more years. I wish he'd had 20 more years. He's 79, which is really not that old these days, I feel. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's still like average, but I feel like my grandmothers both lived well into their 90s. And I feel like that's what we expect these days. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, I wish, I wish for him and for all of us that he had more time as well, as long as he was well. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't want him to have you know, years of a protracted illness in which he was suffering or not able to function at all. The way he was those last 10 days, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want him to have to continue like that. It must be horrible. But what, I, what really, really made me cry and made me sad is, is actually a, sort of feeling sorry for myself that I didn't get more time with him. And I really feel that really strongly because I didn't grow up in the same house with my dad after five years old because my parents divorced. Mm-hmm. And of course, that wasn't my decision. Um, but, you know, that means that I had a lot less time with him growing up than I would have had if, if they'd stayed married. Of course, I also went away for university. I went away. You know, I just didn't never, I left it. I left home at 18. I never, I never went back. I never lived in Seattle again. So I, I saw him, like if you were to count up the days, it's not a lot of time. Some of that was my fault. Some of that was, quote unquote, his fault. <laughs> um, but what really got me, and I was putting my son to sleep one night, two or three days before he died, I was putting my son to sleep. I was sitting by his side of his crib and telling him a story. And I just put my head on the side of the crib and I started bawling my eyes out silently <laughs> because I had this thought. I thought of all of the times that I didn't go back for Christmas I loved spending Christmas at my dad's. It was the best. It was just the best. Tons of people, grandkids, babies, just tons of people, really good food, really, you know, warm, big house full of people. Like that's like, I think that's like how Christmas should be. Just tons of people and all like, you know, close family because we had such a huge family. And I, and 2007 was the last year I went back. After that, 2008, I met my husband and of course, you know, I wanted to spend Christmas with him. And he could never take Christmas off, almost never. So, you know, Christmas after Christmas in Rome, which is great, but I was missing my family. I wanted to spend Christmas with them. And I'd like to think my dad wanted to spend Christmas with me too. I'm sure he would have loved that. And every year I would talk to him at Christmas and I would say, next year I'm really going to try to come out for Christmas. Like every single year I said this. And it's not, I wasn't just... BSing. Like, I really meant it. Like, I really was like, I think next year, I, I think we're going to make it happen next year. And he would always say the same thing. He would always say, if you can make it, that would be great. But you do whatever, you do whatever's best for you. Like he was, one amazing thing about my dad was he never put pressure on anybody that I know of. Just never. Like, as far as getting good grades, as far as pursuing my singing career, 
I never felt any kind of that kind of career pressure from him. I changed career paths so many times. He never made me feel bad about it. Always just so accepting. And he always would say that. He was like, okay, I, I would love it if you would come. That would be so great. But, you know, don't feel bad if you can't. And every year, next year I think we're really going to come. Next year. And I was sitting by that crib and I thought, there's not going to be a next time. It's over. He's not going to make it to Christmas. And I just started sobbing because I felt doubly bad because I felt guilty for, you know, never coming when I said I would. And I felt bad for myself <laughs> because those were wonderful Christmases. And I'm never going to have one just like that again because he's not going to be there. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. Oh. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm starting to cry. It's happening. Put it on the calendar. Oh my gosh. No, no, I'm holding it back. I'm holding it back. You don't have to hold it back. It's all right. Everybody feels for you. I um it's interesting cuz I don't know if it's about the death of a parent or something that makes you into a child. Not that I ever ever not felt like a child because unlike you I'm not a parent, so I think I get to stay in this forever child Peter Pan garbage that <laughs> Some people stay in for life. Um, but I do think that when it comes to the death of a parent, that you'll, you're just you're just the child, you know, that there's these family Christmases that you remember. That I mean, I guess I'm thinking of like the morning when my grandfather died, my mother's. I'll never forget like her walking into the room. I had just graduated from high school and her coming into my bedroom early in the morning and uh, kneeling by my bed and just telling me that he had died um, and that she just sort of laid down on my lap you know crying like a child like a child yeah <laughs> see now I'm gonna get emotional but it was like the only time I ever like saw my parent my mom as the kid that she was you know no I've seen you as the kid who you were your whole life um yeah and it's interesting because, you know, you talk about missed time with your dad and um, it's like we've been friends for so long and I think I only met your father like one or two times. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I saw him. It just, I spent time with him but it just wasn't as much as you would spend with some of your parent who you're living with every day. And it could, never can be. Even if you have, uh, even if you have 50-50 custody, which my parents did not, my mother had us much more of the time. But it's just never, it just can't, it can't be the same. And then, of course, when you move away, you know, you don't think about it when you're 18. You think, I want to see the world and live my life. And that's right. That's what you should do. And my mom said that to me. She said, you know, you'll find this out as your child grows that your kids are going to go on and have their own life. And you want that for them. And you don't want to hold them back. And you don't, I don't think that a, a parent, at least a good parent, feels, you know, resentful towards their children for going away. No, I don't think so. Not at all. I don't think that he... That's the thing that's so interesting about us calling it guilt, that you feel guilty that you missed that time. Because in a way, you did right. You grew up and you moved. <laughs> you went and found where you wanted to be. That sort of thing. Yeah. And it's funny because you actually... It's equally strange because you live in a culture where, you know, kids don't do that. <laughs> you know? Um, where there's not this expectation that you'll go and you'll go off and explore. But for us, there is. And I think that's, I think it's great that you did. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a, one of the biggest cultural differences, I think, between 
my home country and my adopted country. But yeah, he was always, you know, wherever you want to go, whatever you want to do, he was just he was just that type of person. Maybe we should end with you telling that story that you told me the other day about yeah. one of the, the memories you shared of him taking you shopping, because I thought that was such a funny, funny story. The, the Trump Tower story? Yeah. Yeah, and maybe so we'll end on like something funny that we remember about you. Well, I do. I actually do want to say one other thing. Okay. Should I say them both? Should I tell both stories? Sure. They're both very short. Yeah, the first yeah. story is the one that Katie was talking about. When, so I should say, my dad was a very clever person. He was not an intellectual, but he was very, very clever, and he was a very good businessman. And he <laughs> he took me and I. I want to say my sister Monique was with us, but I'm not positive of that because I'm not sure. But anyways, point is, I was definitely there. My stepmother was definitely there. And we went into Trump Tower in New York City. I couldn't have been more than, I was a teenager, let's just say. And he said, okay, Tiffany, (laughs) you can buy anything you want here. One thing, one thing, anything you want. But if we go into a shop and then we leave the shop, you can't go back into that shop. It's a perfect play on, you know, if you know human nature, which I guess my father understood human nature, he knew that a teenage girl would never be able to choose something knowing that there was another shop next door that might have something better. So he was, his tactic worked, and I did not get anything because I right. could not decide. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that. But the memory that I really want to share, which is just so dad. It's just so classic him. Is that one day, and I think I was probably around the same age, teenager. And I should say that if I haven't said this already, I'm sure I have, but uh, I'm the youngest of six daughters. My dad had a six girls with, um, with three different moms. I'll just put that out there. <laughs> and he didn't have any sons, right? He, he had, he all, had girls. all girls over a span of 19 years. And I said to him, Tell the truth, Dad. When my mom was pregnant with me, I bet you really, really wanted a boy. (laughs) And he said, totally seriously, when your mom was pregnant with you, that was the only time that I really wanted a girl. Wow. Yeah. That's a great answer. (laughs) Yeah, well, like I said, my dad was clever. I choose to believe that he meant that, (laughs) Um, that he wasn't just trying to be the charmer that he was um but yeah oh that's great so Uh, well there's really no good way to leave it um except to say that uh, you know call me anytime if you need uh if you need anything thank you yeah and for those of you listening if you have your own stories of I still don't like the guilt that part of it. I mean, I get why it's guilt, but I know it's not right. It's it not right. It doesn't seem right. Yeah. Nobody who who is on the receiving end of the guilt wants to have that person. You know, nobody wants people to feel guilty about them. Right. You know, it's a negative emotion. It's a negative for both people. So I know that. And my sisters, when I was, I'm, you know, texting with my sisters, and I feel guilty. They say, Dad would not want you to feel guilty. Yeah. And I know that. Yeah. I know that. So I'm gonna try not to feel guilty and just. Um, just remember the happy times, which is what I've been doing lately. So many, you know, could could have been more, but I'm going to cherish the ones that, that I have. I can ask you one other question, actually. Has it made you think, I know that you've already been kind of going back and forth in your head about how much longer you want to stay in Rome in general, even though it's just sort of an intellectual exercise at this point. Mm. Does it make you want to change 
your life somehow? Be closer to home? <sighs> um, sometimes I sometimes I feel that, but I, I, th- I think that's a fleeting thought. I don't think that I would move back for that reason. I say that now. You know, who knows? Down the line, I could change my mind. For right now, that wouldn't... I don't think that would be a huge uh, changing factor in what I decide to do. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Um, if you want to send us a note, there's a whole bunch of different ways. Tiffany, you want to tell everybody? <laughs> I'm sure you can reach us on Twitter at Bittersweet Pod. We are also on Facebook at the Bittersweet Life Podcast. Is that right, Katie? That's right. That's right. Okay. Right. Oh, you can email us at thebittersweetlife at mail.com. That's M-A-I-L dot com. You can also come to our website, thebittersweetlife.net. Yes, where you'll find all of those things. And man, we just started an Instagram account. Yes, I totally forgot about Instagram. Yeah, I think it's the Bittersweet Life podcast again. All of it seems so useless when you're talking about the death of a a parent. But if you did want to follow us, you can. We're just saying that it's an option. If you want to tell us your story, you can do it in any of those places, but bittersweetlife at mail.com is our email. All right. Well, let's leave it there. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again. Bye. Thanks to the Dapper Dandies and my friend Dante for the music and the new opening of the show. Follow our brand new Instagram account. The name to look for is The Bittersweet Life Podcast. And this show needs your support more than ever to keep it alive and coming to you week after week. So tell a friend, write us a review, and please donate to help pay the bills. It takes hours and hours of work to make this show happen. If you love it, help keep it alive and visit the donate button at thebittersweetlife.net. Think of it as a tip in our virtual busker's hat. Thanks. Thank you.